If you don't have a Bible, the verses I'll read today should be printed on the screen behind me. I'm actually going to read starting in verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter. So this is a pretty good chunk. Um, Last week we looked at 11 through 15. So we'll talk a little bit about that this week, but um, primarily we're going to focus on 16 through 40. So uh, just know that as we're reading. Um, As you're turning there and getting ready um, to hear this word from God uh, as we read Acts 16, uh, I would encourage you all, um, I don't know uh, how you practice devotions during the week. Perhaps um, you read your Bible some, perhaps you pray. I hope you do that. Um, but I'm, I want to send you a link to a sermon. There's a guy in, in New York who, his name's Tim Keller. Perhaps you've heard of him before. If not, I would love to be the first person to introduce him to you. Um, he has a sermon on Acts 16, and it is far superior to what you're about to hear from me. And I'm going to send you the link via churchwide email. And if you have time, I don't want to disrupt your normal devotion routine. Um, but if you have time and, op- and want to take the opportunity, I would encourage you to listen to that message. I would actually say listen to it a few times. It's really good. It has helped me tremendously. So I'll try to send that out to you tonight. If you're visiting with us and are interested in hearing that, uh, my email is in the bulletin. Please feel free to email me and say, what's the link to that sermon? And I'll be happy to send that to you. So that said, let's look at this together. Longer section, get ready. It's pretty fascinating. Hear this. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Isn't that fascinating words? She prevailed upon us. She was a good salesman, you know. She had her own business. As we were going to the place of prayer, verse 16, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories. They remind us of your great power. They remind us that you are the author of words, the author of communication. And you've given us ears, you've given us eyes, you, you have made our bodies so that we might hear from you and receive what you say. So during this time, Lord, I ask that the main purpose for us hearing your word and sitting under it here is not that we would get some new techniques on how to make it just one more week. I ask that you would keep us from thinking that just by showing up today, we can check that box off. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts so that as we come to you and sit under your word, as we come together every week, that we might want to be transformed and changed. That every week, every time we read your word, we would want to be transformed by your power and your grace. So unto that end, Lord, we ask. Whatever you want to do, I know you're going to do it. But I pray that you would make us fall in love afresh with the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We're starting a new series this year uh, looking at the book of Philippians. 
And if we're going to understand the book of Philippians, that means that we need to go back to the beginning of the Philippian church. That's why we're looking at Acts 16. That's why we looked at it last week. That's why we're looking at it this week. We need to understand the founding of the Philippian church before we get to Philippians 1.1 and following. It's important. You see, we need to remember that God has a plan. God has a plan for the entire world. God has a plan to spread His glory. He really is at work in the world in which we live. He really is at work in your life. He really is at work in my life. He is at work in whatever you're doing every day. God is at work. What's interesting is when we go back and look at Acts, particularly in the beginning, Jesus lays out the plan. The plan is is that the gospel is going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to spread out to Judea and Samaria. And then from there to the ends of the world, Acts chapter 1-8, that's the plan that Jesus communicates to the disciples and to us. But here's the thing. If you, read through the, if you read through the book of Acts, what you find is that the followers of Jesus weren't going from town to town. They weren't living their lives every day. They weren't having everyday encounters in which they would say, hey, here's the plan. Let me tell you the plan. We met with Jesus, and this is the plan. This is what's going to happen. That wasn't how they lived their life. As a matter of fact, they were far more concerned with the planner than the plan. Wherever they would go, whatever they were doing, they were thinking about and talking about the fact that Jesus Christ had been crucified for their sins and the truth that Jesus Christ was alive from the dead. That's what they couldn't get over. You see, that challenges us right away, doesn't it? Because we always want a plan. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a plan. If Jesus has a plan, we can have a plan. The problem is when the plan becomes the ultimate, when the plan becomes the goal, when we start focusing more on the plan than on the planner. This year, I hope as a church, we start to look at a plan and think about a plan and maybe even plan some things together. But unless our plan lines up with the plan of our risen Christ, our plans are off. As a matter of fact, if any plan that we develop, if, any, if we have any plan that takes us away from focusing on the planner, we've missed it. See, it's challenging us. The fact that God has a plan is challenging us. God's people in the first century were ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. That means if we focus on the planner, if we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, that frees us to live our lives. We don't have to think of our lives as, well, I do this here, and then I add God's work on top of it. I do this work over here, then I add missions on top of that. No, everything that we're doing is for the Lord. Everything. Whether we're at home wiping butts or whether we're making business deals. Everything is for God. You see, those followers of Christ in the first century understood God doesn't have a mission for his people. They understood God has a people for his mission. And that can radically change our lives. It can change how you parent. It can change how, you mar- how you're married, how you might get married. It can change how you think about your job. It can change how you exercise. 
It can change everything. The fact that God is a people for his mission. What I want to show you from this text today as we look at the last part of Acts chapter 16, I want to show you three accounts of the gospel in action. Three accounts of the gospel in action. Three accounts of the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection in action. Last week we looked at Lydia, and if you weren't here, you might go back and listen to it, especially if you need help going to sleep. But it's there. So I'm not going to recover Lydia again. I'm just going to reference it a little bit and tie it together at the end. Today we're going to focus on the last two stories in Acts 16. But we're going to look at three accounts of the gospel in action. We pick up the story in verse 16 with Paul and Silas and Luke and perhaps others going to a place of prayer. You remember Paul first entered the town of Philippi. And there wasn't a synagogue, so he had to go down the river, because that's where people would gather to pray. Where here he's traveling again, perhaps down to that same river. We don't, we're not exactly sure where he was going, but he was gathering. He was going to the gathering where people would meet for prayer. And as he was gathering, as he was going to that place, he was met and followed by, the text tells us, a slave girl, a young girl. The text even gives us a little bit of profile about who she was. It says it starts, off, it starts off by describing her as having a spirit of divination. If you have another translation, it might say something like she had the spirit of a python. Now, I know that doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard before. But in that day and time, this phrase, this descriptor, this spirit of divination was actually a way. It was a common saying. It was slang for describing someone that was off their rocker, we might say, in our day and age. Someone who was, you know, not quite right. If you talk to my girls, my young girls, they might tell you that this person would be totes cray-cray. This was someone that was known for being crazy. At least that's what people thought. That's why they described her in this way. It was slang for communicating that many people thought she was crazy. You see, she was probably a teenager. She was probably a teenager that was sold into slavery by her parents because her parents didn't want her. They didn't know what to do with her. They didn't know how to handle her. So they just figured we'll sell her and we'll just, we'll just get this over and done with. We'll get her out of our lives and she can keep doing whatever it is that she's doing. Why? Whatever reason she's doing it, she'll just continue. So they sold her to these men and they owned her. You see, she had a particular skill. She was able to predict the future. See, not much has changed. There are people today that you can go to to predict the future. Wouldn't you love to know what was in your future, like details? Most of us would. You can go to fortune tellers. You can go to palm readers. Same thing still going on today. Here's a woman who could predict the future, and those that owned her realized this was a tremendous business opportunity. So here's what we'll do. If you need to know your future, come to us. We have a young girl that can tell it to you. And if you pay X amount, she'll do it. So you see, they had a very lucrative business. They took care of her, and they made this happen. So here she was, a young girl, sold into slavery. Someone who was oppressed, someone who was a victim, someone who was held captive by a demonic spirit. Someone who is held captive by slave owners. Here we have this young girl. Unless we move on too quickly, realize that this relates to us as well. You see, this is teaching us something incredibly powerful about the nature of sin. 
the fact that this girl was enslaved, the fact that this girl was under someone else's control, that she was held captive by something, is teaching us a lot about sin. You see, sin is far more. The Bible teaches us that sin is far more than just behavior. Sometimes it would be nice if sin was just behavior, wouldn't it? Then all we need is just behavioral modification all over the place and everything would be great. But if you're a parent, you realize it's not. If you're willing to be honest with yourself, you realize it's not. Behavior modification doesn't work. It might help tweak things a little bit here and there, but it doesn't get to the fundamental problem. It can't stop things, bad things, evil things, wicked things, sin from happening. See, in the Bible's teaching, sin is not only a behavior. There's actually something much deeper. Sin is actually a power. Sin is actually a presence. And something needs to happen in order for that to change. We might like to think that we can control our sin. The reality is, is that apart from Christ, we are enslaved to it. We are held captive to our sin. That's the truth. I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate this to you, and perhaps you'll find this story quite bizarre. Maybe corny, I don't know. But maybe you younger kids will get a, get a, handle, on the, get a handle on this. If you want to sometime, go on that thing you call YouTube. You know what it is? You heard of that? Yeah, we all like YouTube. You ever looked at the YouTube video on how to catch a monkey? Look it up. It's pretty funny. I think it illustrates something very, very powerful here. It, here's how you catch a monkey. You can go to the desert in Africa. You can go to those places. And what they do is you'll find a man, could be a woman, doesn't matter. You'll find someone who wants to catch a monkey. And what they'll do is they'll find out where the monkeys live. And they'll go to the place where the monkeys live and they'll take a shovel. And in front of the monkeys, making sure that the monkeys are watching, because monkeys are intelligent and very inquisitive. And in front of the monkeys, what they'll do is they'll take this shovel and they'll dig it into the ground. They'll dig in the ground and they'll dig out a bit of a hole and they'll have a jar. And what they'll do is they'll put that jar in the ground where they've dug the hole. And they'll put the jar in the ground and they'll pack the dirt all around the jar, leaving the top of the jar uncovered. And all the while, the monkeys are watching, just sitting there wondering, what in the world are these people doing? And they'll pack the dirt all around the jar, leaving the top of the jar open. And before the the individual leaves that digs this hole, they will put like fruit in the jar because they know monkeys love fruit. And then the men will take the shovel and they'll walk away. And it takes a little while, but the monkeys get so curious as far as what has happened in their space and what is going on in the ground that they'll actually walk over to the hole and you know what they'll do? They'll stick their hand down in the jar and they'll grab the fruit. The problem is they won't let go of the fruit and they get caught. That's how they catch them. You see, they want it so badly, they want that fruit so badly that they won't let it go, and it traps them. You see, that's exactly what happens with us in sin. We think we can control it, we want something so bad, and we decide we're going to go for it, and we won't let it go. And it gets us in all kinds of trouble. Sin is far more than behavior. 
There's power and a presence that are going on. And we get held captive all the time by sin. All the time. Apart from Christ, that's all we have is ensnarement to sin. That's all we are is held captive by sin. Apart from the Lord Jesus. We get to experience that regularly. That sin is far more than behavior. We see what happens here is that God acts. See, the woman is ensnared not only by the demon, but also by these men. And she's following Paul and Silas around all the time, and she's screaming out. These are servants of the Most High God. And and if you listen to them, their message is this. They're telling you, they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she's screaming this out, following Paul and Silas around. And finally, don't you like how the text says this? Paul is annoyed. You ever been annoyed by someone? I love the realness of the gospel accounts. I love the realness of the New Testament and the realness of the Bible. Paul wasn't thinking. He wasn't presuming upon any gift that he might have. He was normally living his life. You see, what was happening here is that Paul wasn't reasoning with this girl. That wasn't what she needed. She was so ensnared and so oppressed that it took far more than a conversation with somebody. What she needed was a powerful, experiential encounter with God. That's what she needed. And that's what happened that day. She was radically changed and transformed. She was a new person. But you see, the fact that she was set free, the fact that she wasn't ensnared anymore by the demon, by that spirit of divination, the fact that she was set free by that didn't change right away what happened with those that owned her. As a matter of fact, they were angry that this has happened. They were upset that their business plan had just flatlined. So they went right after Paul and Silas. The text tells us that they went out and grabbed Paul and Silas and they drugged them out to the city center and drugged them in front of the magistrates. You see, they were really upset that this has happened. And they drug them out in front of the magistrates and the magistrates beat them, stripped them, beat them down, and then handed them over to this jailer, the Philippian. You see, the fact that this woman was now free ultimately led to Paul and Silas being beaten and thrown in prison. And it was there that they met the jailer. It was there in prison that they met this man from Philippi who was in control of the prison. And what we know about men during this time who have this particular position is that they are almost exclusively ex-Roman soldiers. That means that they were tough It means that they understood war and had participated in war. It means that they're the kind of guy that has a job and they do it. They're the kind of man that has a job and a responsibility and they get it done. They're not lazy. They are on it. They are aggressive. They are responsible. This Philippian jailer more than likely had been involved in war He had been involved in not only killing people, but making sure that people were killed. He was tough, he was driven, he was careful, he has a job, and he does it. 
As a matter of fact, because, that he, because he was put and given responsibility here at the jail, what that probably meant was that he was close to retirement. He still had much of his life left, but it meant that he was at the end of his, the tail end of his professional career, you might say. He had had tons of experience. Well, here he is. As I think of this man, oftentimes I think of my grandfather's. You know, both of my grandfathers served in the war, a couple different wars. And it, my grandfathers were, were tough. They were driven, you know? They weren't always super vocal. As a matter of fact, emotionally, they were very, very, very reserved. Didn't always know what they were thinking. You didn't always know what they were feeling. They were that old school guy that determined that he was going to say as few words as possible. Does that sound familiar? But when they spoke, it really meant something. You know, the way that my, grand, the way that my grandparents would fight would be a battle of silence. Who was going to give in first? Because when they would get into a struggle, a conflict in their marriage, granddad would just leave and go down to the shop and be gone for hours. And grandmother would just start cleaning. Not baking, not cooking. That would be given in. Because granddaddy would smell that and think everything's great, I'm coming back now. When you think about these men like this jailer who were hard, any time, it doesn't matter your personality. It doesn't matter if you're really outgoing. It doesn't matter if you're really reserved. Any time you are around war, any time that you are around the horrors of war, any time that you are around death, doesn't matter your personality. It really does change you, doesn't it? Many of you have been around someone who's died. You're different. It doesn't matter if you're outgoing. It doesn't matter your personality type. To be around someone who dies, to be around death, to understand death, to wrestle with death, it changes you. It makes you a different person. You can't be around death and be exactly the same person that you were before. It has a dramatic effect on you. Without question, it had a dramatic effect on this jailer. Here he is. He takes Paul and Silas, and after they were beaten and stripped, what he does is he puts them in stocks, which is certainly a form of torture. Because what he would do and what was done is that they would take the men who were to be put in prison and they would spread their legs apart and not to the point where it was like a split or anything, but they would just spread, spread their legs to an uncomfortable place apart and then they would lock them in place to these stocks. And what it was meant to do was over a period of time because your legs were spread apart and you couldn't really move that much and because you were stretched, it would cause pain and stress and cramping, but there was nothing you could do. So it was a form of not only making sure that they weren't going to go anywhere, it was also a way of inflicting more pain, more stress, more difficulty. Well, at midnight, see, in the midst of this pain, in the midst of the torture, in the midst of being beaten, in the midst of being thrown in jail, Paul and Silas are singing and praying. And about midnight, something dramatic happens. The text tells you that there's an earthquake. 
Verse 26, and it's such a significant earthquake that it shook the whole prison, that it opened all the doors, and that it gave every prisoner the opportunity to leave. It gave every prisoner the opportunity to escape. You see, there was one rule of being a jailer that matters a lot here, and it's this. If you're the jailer, if you're in charge of the prison, if you're in charge of all those that are there, if any one of them escapes, you don't. If any one of them gets away, you die. The earthquake comes, the doors are opened, everybody's chains are loosened. Everyone who's there has the opportunity to escape and the opportunity to leave, and the jailer knows it. And he goes to get his sword and he determines, this is it, I've got to end my own life. And right before, right before he's about to plunge the sword into his own chest, Right before he's about to kill himself, Paul yells out, Don't do it. We're all here. The jailer comes in to see Paul and Silas and the others, and he says to them, Gentlemen, what must I do to be saved? What do I need to do? And Paul tells him, You need to believe. You need to entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to give the entirety of your life to Him. You need to find your identity in Him. You need to give all that you are to Him. And it wasn't long before the jailer had Paul and Silas in his house. And what's so beautiful about this, what's so beautiful about the jailer having Paul and Silas in his house, is that he begins to wash the wounds that he helped inflict. Isn't that an amazing picture? Here's the man that a few hours ago was torturing them, and here he is, having them in his own home, washing and cleaning them. Now, just for a moment, I want us to take a side note, and I want to talk about something in the text that I didn't bring up last week, and I'm going to mention this week. And I want you to know that this is a secondary issue. I want you to know that if what I'm about to say makes you upset, That's not my intention. And I want you to know that this is not the most important thing in the passage. This is not the most important thing in the sermon. But I do want to bring it up. I do want to underline it for you. Not belabor it. I want you to realize that when the jailer was baptized, he was baptized in exactly the same way as Lydia. I want you to realize what the text says. The jailer believed and Lydia believed. The jailer was baptized, and Lydia was baptized. Lydia's house was baptized, and the jailer's house was baptized. There's no mention in the text that anyone other than Lydia and the jailer believed. What we see the Bible teaching and pressing upon us is that baptism is not a sign of faith. It's not my declaration. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture that the gospel is of grace. It's a picture that reminds us that God doesn't just care about individuals making their profession of faith, however true that that is. And it's very true that those that come to faith as an adult and have never been baptized and didn't grow up in a Christian home, they need to profess faith. That comes first, and then they're baptized. 
And it's also true that because, because of their profession, God doesn't just care for individuals, he cares for the family. He always has and he always will. God makes promises not just to those in the house that parents that believe. He makes promises to them about their children. He loves them. See, the gospel is pictured in baptism. Baptism pictures the gospel of grace and what God does and what God promises to do. That's what we have here with the Philippian jailer and Lydia. As a matter of fact, it's even fairly clear. They rejoiced over the jailer's faith as a family, not anybody else's. So I just want to suggest that to you and float that out. It's not the main thing. Please don't walk out of here saying, well, Pastor, I had to talk about baptism today. Because that's not the main thing that's going on at all. You see, God reaches the jailer differently. The jailer was a man who was hardened by war. The jailer was a man who was tough. The jailer was a man who had seen the horrors of war and the horrors of the human heart. The jailer wasn't really interested in spiritual things. He was probably incredibly cynical. He was probably jaded. He was probably closed emotionally. And he probably wasn't interested in spiritual things at all. As a matter of fact, the jailer was probably the type of guy that would rather see a sermon than hear one. God didn't come to the jailer with this dialogue. What God did in the jailer's life is he showed him the gospel. He showed him the significance of what he had done for Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas knew that the greatest death they could ever have had been purchased by the Lord Jesus. They weren't afraid of death anymore. God showed him. God showed the jailer the power of the gospel. There's a man that I've been reading a little bit recently. His name is Malcolm. And Malcolm has written a lot of books, and Malcolm has done a lot of things. He's a very, very well-respected journalist and author in our country. He's written five books, and they have all made the New York Times bestseller list. And what's so interesting about Malcolm is that he has lived his life. He kind of grew up in somewhat of a Christian home, although I think that's debatable. And then he certainly walked away from whatever semblance of Christianity was there. And he went to do whatever it is that he did until this point where he's writing and on and on. And as he was writing his most recent book, David and Goliath, he was doing this research. And he went back to Canada to have a conversation with a woman that he had a conversation with a long, long time ago. And he went back to this woman because the worst thing that could possibly happen had happened to her and her family. One of her children was abducted and murdered. And when Malcolm Gladwell started meeting with her, he's like, well, Tell me about this. And she was telling him the story. And she said, I just wish I knew. I just wish I could meet with those who had abducted and murdered my daughter. Because I want to give them the love. I want to show them the love that apparently they have never had. And that absolutely floored Malcolm. He didn't know what in the world to do with that. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, well... No, I need to forgive them. I'm not ready to forgive them yet. That also floored Malcolm. But that was the very thing 
that God used to bring Malcolm to himself. Malcolm went on to say that through this interview with this woman, he understands and understood the logic of Christianity. He understood and had heard the claims of Christianity and the claims of the gospel, but he needed to see its power. And talking with this woman evidenced that power. That for him, the fact that someone could have a child that was abducted and then ultimately murdered, and that mother was willing and willing to even consider into the future for, to forgive and wanted to show that individual or individual's love, that is the power of the gospel. And some people have to see the power of the gospel. They're not ready for a verbal exchange. They need to see it in action. You see, what this is telling us is that your life situation and my life situation is not a problem for God. No matter where you are, no matter what's happened, your life situation is not a problem for God. It's not a problem for the gospel. Lydia Lydia reminds us that the gospel convinces good people that they're bad. She was a very successful woman that had to understand she was a sinner. The slave girl reminds us that the gospel sets the oppressed and the ensnared free. The jailer reminds us that to the jaded in the world, to the cynical, to the disinterested, the gospel shows its power. It's how God relates. It's how we see the gospel in action. And beloved, this is how we must relate to people in our lives. Do you realize that there are people in your life that they need to have dialogue about the truth of Christianity? This means that we must interact with people and begin conversations with folks, looking toward and, and being willing to have a protracted conversation with people. Because they need, over time, they need space to wrestle with the truths of the Bible. They need space to think about and think through and ask and express their doubts and frustrations. They need space to dialogue about the truth of Christianity. There are people in your life that need that space and need that conversation. There are other people in your life that have been so hurt and are so broken and so oppressed and so ensnared by their past, by their present, by whatever they think might happen in the future. They are so ensnared and so scarred and so hurting your conversation with them will not help. They need a powerful, experiential encounter with God. And there are other people in your life that are tired of you talking. They are tired of you preaching at them. They are tired of you telling them they want to see a sermon. They're tired of hearing it. And beloved, as you think through the people in your life, in your own family, your co-workers, your neighbors, whatever it is, those that need to see the gospel, those that need to understand the power of the gospel as they see it, stop trying to talk to them. Those that need the experiential, powerful encounter, don't try to talk with them. Stop trying to give them more data. 
pray and trust and come alongside. And those that you're talking with about the gospel, give people space. Give them space to process. Give them time to ask questions. It's not about convincing them that they're right. It's not about reminding them that they need to agree with you. But they need to understand the truth of the risen Christ. See, all this points us back to Jesus. All three of these. The reality is that Jesus' heart was closed off from the Father's love so that our hearts might be opened up to the Father's love, just like Lydia. The truth is the Lord Jesus was oppressed by sin and death and darkness so that we might be set free. The truth is that the Lord Jesus himself yielded his power by not escaping from the cross so that the power of God's grace would be displayed in and through us. Let's pray.